we're going to read this in its entirety. And the next week or two, as we close out our uh, study of the book of Colossians, we're going to kind of bring out some of the practical things that are kind of hidden in this particular text of Scripture. And so we're going to read the whole thing, but we're only going to highlight one actual verse in there. We may look at a couple of them in the, in the upcoming weeks. But, 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 but I want you to see as we go through this text, our big idea this morning is that my lifestyle choices impact the quality and effectiveness of my faith experience. My lifestyle choices impact the quality and effectiveness of my faith experience. Now, I kind of went back and forth over articulating that sentence that way because I know that there's a lot of religious trauma in the room and you might be gearing up to hear another message on legalism and to leave here feeling bad about what all the things you're doing that you shouldn't be doing XYZ. That is not my intention and I hope that you understand that sentence in a broader way by the time we leave here this morning. However, at the same time, it's important that we acknowledge of course we believe in grace and mercy, the forgiveness of the Lord. We believe in Jesus' words, do not judge lest you be judged, and to give room for your brother and sister to be failing and in process, and you're there to support them, and you're being careful that you don't slip over into a place of judgment, but you recognize that it's according to their master and their master alone whether or not they stand or fall. We believe those things with all our heart, and we seek to live them in our community. But if, there, if, 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 if anything, there's a danger in the misunderstanding, it is sometimes people take away from that message that our lifestyle choices are inconsequential to our experience of faith, and that simply isn't true. Our lifestyle choices have no impact on our worth before God because that is secure in Christ. Our, our, our lifestyle choices do not rip us out of his hand because nothing can rip us out of his hand. So ultimate questions of our security before God are firmly in place, but the experience of our faith can either be enhanced or hindered by the kind of lifestyle rhythm that we seek to cultivate. And we want to be realistic about that other side of grace because grace doesn't just say you are forgiven and you're welcome to struggle here. Grace says you will be empowered by the Spirit to go on a journey of transformation that will... Oh, that's okay. Did you want to say something? Okay. <laughs> uh, to, to go on this, on this journey of transformation, that's part of the fun of what it is to follow Christ is He doesn't leave you the way you came to Him. He transforms you and he literally recreates you to be a force of reconciliation and kindness in the world. And we want to participate that. And so we want to recognize, yes, we have choices that can make that we can either uh, uh, empower the flourishing or we can hinder the flourishing. And we want to be honest about that. The second thing I want you to see, and, and I've took the liberty, all of these highlights in your text are from me. They're not from the original text. And so I don't want to be presuming to be adding or taking away from the scripture. But I wanted to emphasize these because what I want you to see as you read through this text is the way in which Paul refers to all of his co-workers. And I want you to remember in the way he's talking about them, he's the only one that would qualify for what, what we might call a religious professional in his day. I'm going to try to pause here and not go on too many rants because I have deeply... Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. I don't know what was going on there. Was my voice obnoxiously irritating? And someone said, always? I don't like that. <laughs> oh, boy, they did a dangerous thing. This brings the inner Pentecostal out of me. <laughs> 
ready to go all across the stage and dab my brow, but I'll try to show some restraint. What, what were we talking about? Oh, so what, what I want you to see is the way in which Paul talks about his cohorts in this passage because Paul is the only one that would qualify for what we might call a religious professional. Now, I think that we have done an enormous disservice to the move of the Spirit in the way we've institutionalized and professionalized the clergy. I think it's a mistake. I think that the church of the future is actually going to rethink that model and move back toward a model where what we know is the professional clergy are just the people who are paid to do the work of equipping and to make sure that the resources and the content is available in the hands of the fellow ministers so that we can all do the work together because in this setting in the New Testament, remember, we're not talking about leaders and congregants. We're not talking about pastors and parishioners. We are talking about the move of the kingdom of God that enlists everyone. If you're part of it, by nature of being enlisted, you are not intended to be a passive participant or observer. I mean, a passive observer. You're intended to be an engaged participant. So in the kingdom of God, there is only one class of people. That are, and that, that is servant ministers who've been gifted by the power of the Holy Spirit to use their gifts to serve others, to further the kingdom of God so that the world understands the kindness and reconciliation that is at their fingertips. And it takes all of us to do that. Honestly, I struggle every year when I try to take a moment to pray, Lord, what's the next season? Do I stay in this position for the next year? And every time that I go through that season and I struggle through that, I have to work through what I feel is a little bit of a hindrance of my participation in this thing that we've created that I might reinforce the idea, hey, I've gone to a school and now I'm like one of God's workers and if you listen to me, then I can kind of tell you what to do. That I, I, I hate that we've set it up this way. I am a participant and a co-laborer with you all. And I want you to see this vision, how much this passage just drips with that vision of uh, work in the kingdom of God. So Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Tychicus, our beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Again, I want you to see highlighted how Paul talks about and describes these people. Dearly beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how, how we are and so that he may be able to encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. And they will tell you about everything here. Uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. We're going to look at that passage in a few weeks, but that's a good one too. Uh, verse 13, for I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly beloved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings 
to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, not a great name, Archippus, and tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand and remember my chains. Grace be with you. I want to take a moment this morning in light of the introductory comments I made, which I hope will kind of create a canopy for the thoughts that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks as we wrap up our study of the book of Colossians and look at some aspects of this last paragraph of the letter. But this morning, I want us to hone in on verse 17 and tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. Now, of course, we believe in reading the Bible as his story, their story, first and foremost, before we start reading it as our story and finally my story. But we want to go through all those cycles. And so this is one example where clearly this is an instruction in, that in, in the text itself is given to one man. Who's it given to? Archippus. See, it's fun to say, isn't it? Kind of like the name Fernando. But um, Archippus. It's given to Archippus, but I do think that it's legitimate to look at Paul's instructions to Archippus and make a connection from their story to our story, and then maybe even to my own story because of the principle that Paul is articulating. So let's just take a moment to take a look at what he's saying to Archippus. There are basically three phrases that make up this, this verse. He says, first of all, pay attention, which speaks to the need for awareness. Secondly, he says, to the ministry that you have received in the Lord, which speaks to the call to service. And finally, he says, so that you can accomplish it, which speaks to the idea of faithfulness. And the way faithfulness is not... Now, again, a legalist will tell you that faithfulness is the only factor. I do not believe that. What God brings to the partnership far exceeds what I bring to the partnership. It is not 50-50. And yet... In the order of the divine way that God executes his will, his forgiveness, and his, ex and his reconciliation in the world, he calls people to partner with him. And our faithfulness matters. It means something whether or not we're willing to be faithful to the call of ministry that God has given us. It doesn't mean that you won't have times of discouragement. It doesn't mean that you have times that you've decided to quit. It doesn't mean that you won't have times that you're exhausted and you've got to withdraw and you've got to heal. But it does mean that you recognize all of those seasons are still part of the process of preparation so that you can be present in your life and present to the ministry that God has given you. Not just you as the community, although that's part of it, but also you as an individual. So let's just briefly take a quick look at the flow of these words, maybe looking into the original Greek words that are behind these meanings to see if we can't gather some more insight. Now, I'm not going to pronounce the Greek. I quit doing that. I mean, I don't know if you guys had to suffer through the first two years that I was here when I was trying to prove everyone uh, that I was smart enough to do some preaching, and I was always trying to pronounce Greek words and butchered them terribly. So, look, I only speak Oklahoma Greek, which means I phonetically spell it like, uh, say it like Oklahomans would. So, I'm not going to do that. 
You can read them, look it up. Guess what? YouTube has pronunciation guides for every Greek word you can imagine. So if you're a word nerd, knock yourself out on the Google. But for now, we're just going to look at the concepts that are behind these words. So this idea, this word that's translated pay attention means, look at, to, 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 means I look, I see, I perceive, I discern. So in other words, the process of coming into our ministry, I, we have these ideas that we just wander around lost and then we have some moment, maybe we're about to die, or maybe there's a great thunderstorm, or maybe there's an overwhelming sense of standing on the ocean or at the edge of the sea. The heavens open up, an angel of the Lord appears and says, Thus my servant, arise and go forth, here is thy ministry. And in the meantime, we just kind of watch Netflix and wait for that to happen. But this idea is an idea of discernment. In other words, understanding God's will for your life is progressive. And you really are only certain of it when you're looking back in hindsight. When it's actually happening in the moment, it's okay to be uncertain, to be unsure, to be, I don't know, I think this is God, but I'm a little, I'm still, I've got some fear, I've got some anxiety. That's okay, because discovering God's will is a process of discernment. We have to grow in our ability to see it. And I am coming to believe we probably don't fully even begin to comprehend that until our late 60s. Uh, which is encouraging for me because I thought I had it all figured out. I had to have it all figured out by the time I was 28. And lucky for you all, I did not stop there. Well, actually, it wouldn't have mattered. I wouldn't have been here had I stopped there at 28. So we engage in that process of discerning. We get these little pockets where we're used in a spontaneous moment of ministry that we didn't intend. And all of a sudden, you feel the energy of the Spirit. You ever have those? Now, again, I know I made the joke about getting too Pentecostal this morning with the microphone in my hand, but it was just the other day, this is something that hasn't happened in forever. I was in a place of business, and it was a slow day because it was just me and the person behind the counter. And, and look, Evangelist Artie, who's in your face, who's in the face of every stranger he meets, that guy went to sleep a long time ago. I've tried to balance that out just a little bit because I've shared plenty about the imbalanced way I lived the zeal of my faith when I was earlier, but I had this moment where it was like I stepped into an electrical vortex and the hair on the head stood up in my neck and I clearly knew a phrase that I wanted to say to this person behind the counter, even though we really hadn't created the context for it. But I just felt that. And it's honestly been a long time since I've had a, an experience like that. So I said the thing I wanted to say, and the person leaned over on the counter weeping, and then we opened a door. Now, did I lead him to Christ? And there they are, sitting in the church this morning. No, but that's okay, because I'm more concerned with counting conversations than conversions. I just am curious about the amount of redemptive conversations I can engage in throughout the week, and the results are up to the Spirit. I don't have any pressure on me or them I let the Spirit do the work. But my point is, this was an unplanned, spontaneous moment, but it reminded me of a particular group of people that are a deep burden on my heart that I had come to neglect because I was preoccupied with other things. So what happened, that was just a very precious gift of the Lord where hopefully this person was ministered to, but I got to be reminded of the process of discerning what it is God's really called me do and you have those all the time so we, we, we understand that through a process of engaging making mistakes and stumbling our way through and we discern it and he says that it's a ministry this word ministry is a word from which we get the word English word deacon 
It simply means a service. And in fact, its usage is waiting at the table. And in a wider sense, it simply means a, a service. Look down in, the, in your notes at the HELPS word studies, and it reminds us that specifically this refers to spirit-empowered service guided by faith. So what we see is there's this invitation to discern the ministry that God has called you to commit your life to as part of your faithfulness to growing in the way of Christ. And then he says, you've received it. Now, this word means two things. Number one, it means it was offered to you. But number two, it means you took the initiative to take it. And now that's a very important aspect to it because it's a two-way thing. Not just the invitation, but it's also your inner compulsion to respond to that call to service. And in fact, the Helps Word Studies reminds us that this means to take by showing strong personal initiative. But that means something else. If it's going to inspire you to take strong personal initiative, then the spirit who formed you in your mother's womb that knows all about your wounds, all about your victories, all about your temperament, strengths, and weaknesses, all about your dis, 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 distaste, distaste and disgust, and all about the things that you love, all of that goes into consideration of shaping you for your ministry of service. And so... It's not a scary thing as though God calls us to do something that zaps the joy out of us because that kind of service is not glorifying to him, nor is it a blessing to those who are receiving the service. I mean, really, it's like if I can't do it with a heart of grace, just stay home and let someone else up to bat, right? But we don't have to worry about that because the ministry we're going to be called to is going to elicit from us an internal personal initiative because God is aware of how he has equipped us to bless other people. So he says this, pay attention to the ministry you have received. Pay attention to the call to service you've received from the Lord. And he says a simple phrase, so that. And that simply means in order that. And all I want you to see is that there is a connection point between the fulfillment and ministry and our choice to respond to the call to pay attention. He says... Your paying attention is part of the critical elements involved in your ministry being fulfilled. So it's not a casual thing. Archippus, I have a prospect for you. I've equipped you for a life of ministry, but I know technically you're not a pastor or a deacon, so you might want to consider how your life might be enhanced if you consider your ministry. This is not it. This is, this is Archippus. You are a co-laborer in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God's work needs you to pay attention to what you're called to do because part of that fulfillment is contingent upon the so that that you're involved with. And then he says so that what? You can accomplish it which simply means to make full, to complete, to fulfill. And so there is this call, this awareness that we are called to discern the inner compulsion of the spirit by engaging in service so that we can grow in our discerning of understanding how God has equipped us. And we understand it's all different because he uses all of our gifts and our personalities. Some of us may be called to serve one or two people. Some of us may be called to serve a thousand. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not we are engaging in the discernment process and, and, and fulfilling the destiny for which we've been called in Christ, or at least in part way. I'm not saying we're recruited just for the work we can do, but that is part of the joy of following Jesus is engaging in the ministry privilege that he's given us. Remember Genesis 1. 
Genesis 1, the call to work happens before the fall. The call to work is not part of the fall. The call to work is part of God's redemptive plan because he dignifies us with partnership with him. And that is part of the means through which we experience existential joy in our brief sojourn here on earth before we head back home. Now, as we get ready to respond, I want you to see this, not just simply in the words of Paul, but where this is rooted in the teaching of Jesus. So there's a familiar story, the foot washing service. Any of you come from foot washing backgrounds? Uh, oh, there are a few of you out there, okay? And you remember foot washing, you know, there's, at the end of the night, there was always kind of this nice kind of community feel to it that, that was a blessing, but man, getting there was just so uncomfortable, right? Because oftentimes people would forget, so there was no pre-washing of the feet, you know, and it was just, you're trying to be prayerful and spiritual, and you're pushing all these like little black little gummy things that are gathered in the water away from your hands. I mean, it's just, it's a really raw experience. It's a really raw picture of what ministry looks like. And um, well, all those traditions come out of this story that we're about to take a look at. Now, what's significant about this story is you can imagine, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. He knows this is his final hours with his followers. Now, you have to assume that Jesus has the wisdom to be mindful about how he's using this time. So he's dedicating these final hours to say, I would think some of the most important things on his heart to give to his disciples. That's why John 13 through 17 is such a powerful section of scripture to read through. And so, so here he is, and this is the most important. Uh, so he's, he's coming down to using the, 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 the brevity of time to engage in the most important message with his followers that he can. And what he does is he chooses to serve them. And, and so what he does is he chooses the position that would have been thought of as the lowliest. The lowliest ranking servant would have been the one to wash the feet because as uncomfortable as toe jam is, these folks walked in open-toed shoes where animals were the main source of transportation. And so, it, and so to not have foot washing could ruin a dinner. This is how raw and realistic the scriptures are. So they had a designated job to wash the feet so that your sour feet didn't wreck laying around the table and eating dates and nuts and whatever they ate. Um, and, so, and so this is the position Jesus, the leader, chooses to take. He's making a statement here that this is what leadership looks like. Leaders serve. They are not called to be served. They are called to serve. And here's what he says in John 13, verses 12 through 15. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also ought so uh, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Now, the present called the ministry as what it is, that oftentimes takes its cue of trying to train pastors and servant shepherds to be CEOs of an organization, 
because that's the modern way, not the biblical way. I didn't say it's non-biblical, but it is extra-biblical. These ideas will talk about the importance of your organization having a mission statement and a value statement so people know what you're about. And so you go through these exercises and say what we're going to be about. But so oftentimes, churches, modern churches, evangelical churches, make their mission about education and information. Wouldn't this be amazing? We exist as a church just to be a community who serves as many people as we possibly can. End. What about your beliefs? What about your beliefs? Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I, don't, I mean, who? Look, we each have beliefs. Let's talk about it. Maybe I need to adjust mine in order to, to respond to something you can bring, or maybe you need to adjust yours to respond to something I can bring. But really, isn't it secondary to the higher mission of learning to live as exp physical expressions of the love of God through the service we bring to others and to one another? Doesn't that seem to make more sense than just like drawing a circle around this is what you, if you want to be part of this community, you need to sign on the dotted line that this is what you're going to believe. How silly. It's silly just because how many of you believe the same things that you believed 10 years ago? Raise your hands boldly if that's you. Okay, I'm going to assume you're not intimidated by the crowd, but you're saying, nah, I changed a lot in the past 10 years. Might it be possible that you're going to change a lot in the next 10 as well? How many of you are flat out embarrassed by things you believed and said before? Me? When it stands to reason that 70-year-old Artie might have a few things to say to 49-year-old Artie. Dude, you embarrassed me back then. So silly those things that you said and you were willing to fight about. What weren't they? Yeah, they were. But this is what the call of discipleship is. It's not primarily to get all your doctrinal ducks in a row. It's about catching the vision of your Savior, Creator, God, who models at the heart of the universe is love that seeks to serve and bless others. And if we align ourselves with that divine rhythm of the universe, we're going to be just fine, even though we may be disappointed and have our hearts broken in the process, just like he did. But it's okay because we will be giving ourselves over to the purpose. So what I take from this little story are three ideas that I would like for you to contemplate and mull over this week. Number one, every follower of Jesus is called to a vocation of service to others. We, we have to stop thinking about allowing this structure to communicate that there are two classes of Christians, those who work and those who passively observe. We believe that, though, you know, and it comes in different ways. Like, we'll use phrase like, there are the Christians, and there are the radical Christians. The message being, don't be part of the second class of just regular old Christians. You know, they just pay your taxes and pay the pastor's salary through their donations and come and support the church's efforts. No, no, don't be that... Be a radical Christian and just go just over the top zealous. Get rid of your Nintendos and your Netflix and just whatever you define it. Each group defines it differently. But when they start using that phrase, what they're introducing is an idea of a two-tier citizenship in the kingdom of God. Or we might call them Christians and, what's the word we like to use? Casual Christians. Any 90s youth group people that love to garmo and key? Don't want to be, don't want to be no casual Christian. Remember that? I loved that song. 
I wept and I sang it wishing that the people around me would catch the vision too. And they, because clearly they all wanted to be casual Christians. But Degar Monkey, they were singing to, my, to me and my people, right? But again, I understand, look, I'm not saying that that's a wrong song to listen to or, or whatever. And Degar Monkey, weren't they the ones that had like the uh, guitar? Yeah, they were. So thank you. So I'm not picking on Degarmo and Key, but my point is, once we, we've got to be cautious when we do that because we start creating these two-tiered citizenship in the kingdom of God. There is one class of citizen in the kingdom of God, and it's called a co-laborer in the kingdom of God. That's it. Now, we may have different gifts and callings to those who are on the front line and those who are called to ministries of equipping. I acknowledge that. And again, I'm not suggesting that we blow the whole system up and out of an act of faith, I refuse my paycheck. I'm not there yet. I'm not that radical, I guess. Maybe one day. We'll see. So I'm not picking on and saying we've got to blow the whole thing up. But I am saying we've got to let the structure serve us and not us serve the structure. We are called to all be co-laborers in the kingdom of God. So every follower is called to a vocation of service. Number two, every follower of Jesus will find their ministry from the Lord by practicing a lifestyle of service to others. You know what? You might engage in ministries of service that once you get in, you realize this is not for me. Well, listen, this isn't the legalism of religion. This is the freedom of life in the kingdom of God. If it's not for you, get out. Your drudgery and faithfulness is not doing anybody any favors. Ministry should make your heart come alive. And so you have that calling, every single one of us, and we can discern it by simply getting involved in as much service as we can as we get to know more about ourselves and how God has put us together and equipped us for the service that he's calling us to. And number three, every follower of Jesus can either neglect or fulfill their calling based in part on the lifestyle choices that they embrace. Which just leads us to our big idea my lifestyle choices impact the quality and effectiveness of my faith experience. Now we need to land the plane and respond. But I know what we typically hear in phrases like that. Well, God would have used you, but you drank too much. Not radical, but that last sip went from Jesus high-fiving an angel to Jesus crying because you overstepped it. And, oh, that language, you got to clean that up. Oh, and this thing you got to stop doing, that thing you got to stop doing. But see, this is not what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place to create boundaries if you are struggling through addiction or through some kind of season where you need more boundaries. God knows I've had to have those seasons. Half the time they've been enforced by my wife and children, but nonetheless, I've had those seasons, and I get it. But evangelicalism is so preoccupied with discussions of sins of commission, we never talk about sins of omission. And here's the problem with that. We really believe that it is more egregious to God's heart if someone is in sexual immorality than it is if we choose to not show mercy. But the refusal of mercy is a sin of omission that is just as heartbreaking as sins of commission like unfaithfulness. But we put them in a completely different category because that's where we keep them more comfortable. 
So I'm not talking about what lifestyle changes that you need to get rid of in your life. I'm asking about thinking about a conversation of the lifestyle choices you need to start bringing into the rhythm of your life. What needs to be part of your life, even though you're doing them imperfectly, you still cuss a little, you still do things that are embarrassing and all that, but you are starting, you're not waiting to get perfect before you engage in ministry. You're just asking the question, how might God in the midst of my own imperfections and growth that I'm still engaged in begin to use me? And what is he calling me to do to show mercy, to show kindness and proclaim forgiveness in the world and be a redemptive force in the world? And so, how much time I had to do this fast? But we have to do it. We tend to adopt discipleship models that are about equipping us to stop doing things that we shouldn't be doing. We might call them besetting sins, addictions, all of these things. And again, I'm not saying that we can't pretend like those aren't in our lives. But I just don't I see us doing an opposite model than what the Spirit calls us to do. Because here's the problem with that. I live my life, construct the rhythm of my life around living a really safe life so that I don't sin, I end up living a life that is still 100% about me. And there are two ways that sins can dominate your life. Number one, that your flesh is bound to it and it's become an addiction and it's creating destruct, a destructive force in your life. Number two, you're so preoccupied with never going back to that sin or that lifestyle or that behavior that you are so preoccupied with trying to build a life for yourself to insulate you from temptation that you're still 100% focused on the sin that you're not committing. But nonetheless, sin is still our idol and our God. Whether we are consumed with avoiding it or we're consumed with indulging it, either way, the focus is not Jesus. And the focus is not others. It's still 100% about me and my experience. Here's what's interesting. Let's read this short little verse and then we'll close. Galatians 5.13. Shocking verse, really. This doesn't flow like I would have expected it to flow. It's one of those moments where I'm a little disappointed that Paul wasn't more of an evangelical and he didn't quite get it right. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Pause right there. Now, the way that's always been taught to me <laughs> is that you find out where your sinful temptation of the flesh is, whatever that line is. Okay, it's right here. Okay. Well, then the goal of life is just to make sure you don't do this. Okay? So you want to get as close as you can to enjoying the indulgence of selfishness and sin without making God mad. And it all comes down to this line, right? If I get right up to this line, I'm A-OK. -okay. But if I do this, well, now I'm in the bad camp with all the others out there that I've been judging. So we construct this idea that life is about creating protections for yourself so you can get as close to the edge without stepping over. That's what it means to not give him an opportunity. Well, you're free, brother. Yeah, I, God's not going to reject you yet if you keep listening to Twisted Sister. But, you know, garbage in, garbage out, brother. You listen to that heavy metal too long, and pretty soon you're going to be the son of the devil. So, so that's like, like you give freedom and then you take it away with the other hand. We do this kind of thing all the time as if the point of my existence is to avoid certain Twisted Sister songs. 
which some of you may not be into anyway, but we'll pray for you. We're not going to take it anymore. Anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> now it's just right in my head. Uh, <laughs> and yours too. But, 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 but it's, like, it's like you've been free, but be really careful with that freedom or you're going to step over into sin. That's not what Paul says. Here's how he says you protect yourself from indulging in a lifestyle of addiction to the flesh. He says, for you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Don't, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. I've got some really good news for you. You don't have to keep trying to find the perfect YouTube preacher, the perfect book, the perfect conference, the perfect prayer line, the perfect podcast that'll finally allow you to break free from your flesh. You just need to get up from here and find somebody to serve. The way we are brought to freedom from indulging the flesh is by getting out of our head and serving other people. That's Paul's formula. We can take it up with him because it's gonna hurt some of our book sales. This is what he says. It is not about in anxiety and fear creating a life that protects you from temptation. It's about getting out there really in the midst of it and serving those who are bound by it while living out your narrative of liberty. That's what will set them free and that's what will keep you free because all of a sudden now the posture of your life is not about me, but it's about those I'm called to serve. Long-term freedom from the tyranny of the flesh is not primarily found in those things from which you are willing to abstain. Long-term freedom from the tyranny of the flesh is primarily found in giving oneself to a lifestyle of service to others. Pay attention to your service and be faithful to fulfill it. Would you all stand as the worship team comes forward? How do we respond? Three ideas for you to pray about during your time of worship and communion. Number one, just start small. Start small. You don't have to discern your call to overseas. You might just need to understand your call across the bed. Start small. Become intentional about serving the people in your home. This can begin as simple as this. Is there a responsibility around the house that your partner hates? You hate it too, but they hate it just a little bit more than you? Why don't you take that up on yourself this week? Why don't you make that your job? For no other reason than you're doing that to serve someone else. This isn't complicated. Number two, notice needs. Simply become aware of the suffering that you can help alleviate. Not eradicate. That's only that's his job, not ours. But you can help alleviate it, even if it's just for the moment that you sit and weep with someone else. And finally, pray. Ask the Spirit to reveal what lifestyle choices or internal beliefs are hindering your faithfulness to your ministry. Ask Him for revelation. Then repent, and in the power of the Spirit, go in another direction. It's as simple as that.